Welcome back to WBAI 99.5 FM. This is Driving Forces, the weekly news show where we focus on the issues that are dominating discussion in city, state, and national politics. I'm your one, I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Celeste Katz-Marston. Celeste, how are you doing today? Doing well today, Jeff. Glad to be here with you as always here on WBAI. I'm curious what stories you've been following today. I mean, you know which one I had emailed you about that's been just so disturbing to me. Yeah, absolutely. That story out of Columbus, Ohio, really shocking. And a lot of people are talking about it in a lot of different dimensions, actually. Of course, uh, Prima Fasci, we're talking about the uh, the 10-year-old girl who had to travel to Indiana to obtain uh, an abortion uh, after being uh, sexually assaulted. And, you know, just really a, a horrible story in and of itself, uh, the, the abortion component. And then, of course, this whole other dimension, Jeff, of how people... People treated the initial reports of the story, basically saying that they couldn't possibly be true. And then sort of based on uh, a subsequent arrest in the case, an apparent confession in the case, sort of trying to spin that out, Jeff, into a separate story about immigration. Yeah, it's just been amazing. I mean, the Wall Street Journal had to update their website to kind of correct I'll say clarify, I'll be a little nicer to them right now, but correct what they had reported on Fox also was out there. I mean, Representative Jim Jordan also had tweeted another lie, anyone surprised? And then, and we want to give a hat tip to local journalism, to the Columbia Dispatch for aggressively following this and then being able to be one of the two newspapers that then broke the story that the 27 year old man was arraigned on charges of felony rape of a minor, because until that moment, it seemed like the naysayers were getting their stay in all this to suggest that it never happened, Celeste. Yeah, it's it's really troubling on on any number of fronts. And and it really ties into what we're going to be talking about or one of the topics we're going to be talking about today. We have a great program coming up. Uh, absolutely uh, props here. Go to Jeff Simmons for making this happen again. I've just recently rejoined the program. I was off for uh, a number of weeks dealing with some uh, family emergency stuff. So Jeff has really, really, really been pivotal and holding down the fort, making this show show possible. Uh, always happy to be here with you on Thursdays at 5 p.m. to talk about the the very latest in politics and public policy. But as we were saying, you know, the issue of abortion access to abortion services uh, in a sort of free and untrammeled way, uh, really a big issue in New York as well, sort of protecting those rights and uh, access to those rights, even in the wake, of course, of the landmark decision uh, basically toppling uh, the landmark decision uh, in Roe versus Wade, Jeff. Yeah, and I know we've got our first guest, as Celeste mentioned, we have a packed show today. We're going to get to our first guest in just a moment. We will say that the New York City Council uh, took a number of actions today, and that's why we wanted to have our first guest on to talk about this issue that Celeste just brought up right now, Celeste. Right. So New York, as you know, if, you, if you've been listening to this program, if you've been living in New York for any amount of time, even if you've been reading national news, New York has really been at the forefront of access to abortion services. New York legalized the procedure three years before the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade in 1973. And that meant that thousands of women from other states in the union came to New York uh, to obtain those services. In fact, more women from out of 
state underwent uh, an abortion procedure in New York than people who lived here. So now that the court has overturned Roe, our elected officials both here in the city and in Albany have been talking about what can what they can do to preserve protections here as well as expand and protect services to uh to provide to women who live in other states that now have much more restrictive uh, uh, positioning when it comes to the right to choose and the right to obtain an abortion. So state lawmakers recently passed some bills aimed at protecting abortion seekers and providers. That's a, a whole separate story and directed millions of dollars in funding to efforts that support access and also increase security for reproductive health care centers. Lots and lots we can say about this. But in the wake of the Supreme Court decision uh, in Council, and I'm going to just pop in here to say, uh, forgive me if I'm having some technical issues today, but hopefully you can still hear me loud and clear. If I if I drop out momentarily, I will be right back. Uh, but Speaker Adrian Adams of the City Council uh, and the city's first women majority City Council unveiled what's called the NYC Abortion Rights Act, a legislative package to safeguard abortion and advanced reproductive health care in the city earlier today. The council met to vote on a package of laws to protect women, trans and gender nonconforming people's access to safe abortion and reproductive health care in New York City, as states across the country have already begun to restrict that kind of access to services in response to the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. All of that, and that was a mouthful, but it does bring us to our first guest today, and that is New York City uh, New York City Council Speaker Adrian Adams. Just quickly, she was first elected to the council in 2017 as the first woman to represent District 28. That includes Jamaica, Richmond Hill, Rochdale Village, and South Ozone Park in Queens. She served on the budget negotiation team, negotiating team, the chair of the Committee on Public Safety, chair of the Subcommittee on Landmarks, Public Sightings and Dispositions, and as co-chair of the council's Black, Latino, and Asian Caucus. Uh, so now we are, uh, without further ado, going to welcome her to the program, New York City Council Speaker Adrian Adams. Thanks so much for being here with us on Driving Forces today. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Absolutely. So let's jump right in. We were just talking about today, very busy session for the council, this package of legislation in the aftermath of that Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Uh, when, when the decision came out, you called it infuriating and you said the city would take additional steps to remain a welcoming place for all people who seek abortion care. Tell us more about today's vote. What bills or provisions does it include? What do those do? Oh, sure, Celeste. Well, I, as you said, when that decision came down, I was furious. I was absolutely furious. This is an issue that's so personal um, to me and to millions of people across the country. When the Supreme Court decision on abortion rights was leaked months ago, we were alarmed by the implications of living in a country without the federally protected right to choose. And guess what? We're living in that world right now. So like many Americans, I was infuriated because stripping a woman's right to access reproductive health care means that women, trans, and gender nonconforming individuals will be harmed, they'll be left safe, and in some cases they will die as a result of this ruling. So thankfully here in New York, we are a safe haven for abortion access. But in dozens of states, as we know, women and uh, birthing individuals will be confronted with life-altering decisions, providers, 
can potentially be criminalized for providing appropriate care. And let's not forget who this ruling is going to impact the most. Low-income Americans, communities of color, folks that can't afford to travel to get reproductive care. But our New York City Council, which is made up of a majority of women for the very first time in history, we are the leaders and we took decisive action to safeguard and expand abortion care rights. So let me tell you about the package. The package will require the Department of Health to report on births and abortions provided in New York City every year so that we have a sense of the needs and access gaps. Um, it will also prohibit city resources from being used to restrict abortion care access as imposed by other states' laws. It's going to require a public education campaign on abortion access care and expose crisis pregnancy centers. It will create a private right of legal action when reproductive medical care is interfered with by an entity or an individual who might sue someone for accessing care in New York. And it is going to require city-run health clinics to provide medication for abortions free of charge. Um, now that this package has passed the council, the package goes on to the mayor's desk for his signature, and we're confident that the package of legislation will definitely become law in New York City. And you kind of just predicted my next question there, Speaker, and welcome to the show. Have you gotten indications from Mayor Adams that he would like to move forward with this, that you might see a, a bill's signing coming up relatively quickly? Well, um, I haven't gotten an indication, but we know that the mayor certainly does uh, support women's reproductive rights, um, the rights of women to choose. He actually expressed his own personal experience a few weeks ago. So uh, we really have no doubt that the mayor will hands down support this package of legislation. There were also, if I'm correct, there were a number, it wasn't just bills, but there were a number of resolutions calling on the state legislature or members of the House of Representatives to take mm -hmm. certain actions, too. Did those move ahead today? And if so, what were they? Yeah, that's right, Jeff. We did. We passed six resolutions in this package of bills. Um, they included calling on Congress to pass the Women's Health Protection Act, which uh, extends abortion protections nationwide. We also called on the state legislature to allow out-of-state physicians to productive, uh, reproductive health services while awaiting full licensure. Um, we called on the state to pass the Reproductive Freedom and Equity Protection Program, which establishes a grant program for abortion providers. Um, we also called on the state to pass the Equality Amendment and bring it directly to the voters. This amendment enshrines abortion and other civil rights into our state constitution. Um, we also uh, have a res in there declaring New York City as a safe city for abortion-related care. And we've got another resolution in there declaring January 22nd, 2023, as Roe v. Wade Day. And we, we know that, you know, resolutions are important because they provide an official stance on behalf of the city council and in some cases, they provide momentum to ensure success, as was the case of uh, our raising our voice on the Equality Amendment just a day ahead of the state legislature bringing it up for a vote. They make our positions clear um, on legislative actions that are on the state or federal levels. And taken together, we are definitely sending a strong message that New York City will always, always stand up for the right to safely access abortions and reproductive health care. 
If you're just joining us, this is Driving Forces here on WBAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons, and we are speaking with New York City Council Speaker Adrian Adams, talking most recently about uh, reproductive rights and protection of abortion services, access to abortion services uh, in New York City. And Speaker just wanted to ask, you know, uh, in light of the the Hyde Amendment uh, is something that prevents the use of federal funds uh, for abortion uh, services except to to save the life of the woman or if the pregnancy is associated with rape or incest. Are there any um, such provisions that you are working around with uh, funding in New York City or in New York State that limit how much uh, public financing can be can be uh, spent associated with abortion services and any sort of limitations that you're dealing with? Yeah, thank you, Celeste, for that question. You know, um in 2019, the council, um, for the first time as a city entity, actually allocated a quarter of a million dollars to the abortion access fund. And we are still exploring ways that the city can allocate funding to support abortion providers and organizations that provide this care. Um, as I've said before, um, many times, our city budget is not Certainly, it's not just about a handshake in in June, but um, it's a year-round process that includes modifications. Our partners in the state have taken many steps to provide additional funding to reproductive health care providers, and we're going to look to do the same thing. We've already begun the process of accomplishing this, and uh, we will definitely have more to announce in the upcoming weeks and months around the issue. So, Speaker, there's a question that I bring up simply because of my experience from when eons ago, when I worked in the city controller's office and we dealt with a number of issues involving but uh, calls for divestments. And I'm really curious, you know, I'd read a piece about how employers are revisiting their policies with some providing coverage under group health plans and others looking outside of their health plans to assist women who want to come to uh, mm-hmm. to New York uh, to receive care. And I'm curious if you think this is something that the city's pension funds should look at as well to look at the companies that we're investing in, whether they, their policies are inconsistent with our beliefs here and, and the actions that we're taking here in the city. Yeah, Jeff, that's such a great point. And you know, um, that's definitely something that we can and, and that we should consider. Private employers who provide coverage can play such an important role in expanding reproductive health care to their employees. And um, using our pension funds for this purpose will require review from other partners, certainly including the Comptroller. Um, so while the Council has passed the New York City Abortion Rights Act, it definitely doesn't mean we're finished with exploring ways to support women, uh, trans, and gender nonconforming individuals. We are going to continue to look at all avenues that we can take because it definitely remains a priority for this council. This first majority, if I haven't said it enough, this first majority women council. You know, um, the, the, I'm just going to say this, the right to safe and legal abortion, it is a fundamental human right. And it has to be protected for everyone who seeks reproductive health care, especially in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's backward decision. So our package of city council legislation is going to help ensure the necessary protections and expanded resources to meet New Yorkers' reproductive health needs and all of those who come to our city looking to us 
come to New York to look to us um, to help with access to health care. So this is what it looks like when women are in leadership. And this is why this Women Majority Council is so important. Our priorities and our leadership, it's very, very different. And that difference shows in the results for the people that we represent. So, Speaker, I know our time is limited. We only have about another minute or two. wanted to just squeeze in another question. Uh, we read in the newspapers in the last 24 hours how a number, a majority of the council members, including yourself, had fired off a letter to the mayor demanding that the city immediately restore funding, the funding cuts from the city school budgets. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you believe the mayoral administration was not transparent about these cuts? And where do you see this going? What Have you heard from the mayor since that letter went to his office? Well, um, we're waiting to hear. Uh, we feel very, very strongly about these cuts. We have uh, definitely heard from a number uh, of our educators, of our principals um, in various districts across the city, expressing their dismay at getting this information around their budgets. Um, certainly, um, this council was not aware um, of the um, expansive nature uh, of these budget cuts. Um, but once we found out, we went into action immediately. Uh, we had an initial oversight hearing on this. And yes, we did fire that letter off yesterday. We are hoping to hear back from the mayor and the chancellor shortly um, on their response to it. And I'm hopeful, I'm very hopeful that the needs uh, of our educators, of our principals, and particularly, especially of our children in the city are going to be met and that uh, our letter will be respected. We're talking about a supermajority of my colleagues who signed on, 41 members signed on to this letter um, uh, demanding that uh, these cuts be restored. And just finally, uh, Speaker Adams, in the time that we have, uh, the issue of crime, the ongoing issue of crime, people's concerns about feeling safe on the streets, on the trains, uh, you know, do you feel that there is a gap at all between this perception that the city might be less safe, sort of people's gut feeling and the reality? Are you concerned right now about the job the NYPD or the administration or anybody is doing in terms of controlling crime right now? You know, um, Celeste, uh, that is the number one um, item pretty much on everybody's mind. And, you know, in many cities across the country, there's been an experienced increase in violence throughout this pandemic, and New York is definitely, as we know, not immune to that. This pandemic stripped away so many of the supports and resources that we were, that were already in place to prevent violence, and we're seeing the effects of that. Um, the reality is that many neighborhoods, especially communities of color, have long experienced gun violence and other forms of violence due to historic disinvestment. So as a city and a country, we have to stop the flow of guns and end the iron pipeline that's supplying guns uh, to the hands of people in our communities. The proliferation of guns is definitely undermining our safety. But as a council, we are going to continue to take a balanced approach to safety that focuses on what we know works to make communities safer. And that's investing resources to strengthen our communities um, and many, many other things. It's very important that we target investments for solutions that are effective. And that's what New Yorkers want to address. It's in the realm of public safety, and it's where this council's focus is and taking our holistic approach to it. And Speaker Adams, we always wish we had more time, but if people want to find out more about you and the work that you're doing, 
and the work that you're doing, where should they go to? You can certainly go to the uh, council website at um, council uh, at nyc.gov. Just look us up. Look up New York City Council on the Internet. Check us out. All of our districts, our members, uh, our legislative agenda, our calendar, it's all right there on the New York City Council website. Speaker Adrian Adams, thank you so much for appearing here today on Driving Forces on WBAI. A pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much. So we're going to move very quickly to our next guest, uh, because that is one of the council members who I saw standing to the side of the speaker during a press conference talking about the council's agenda today. I'm talking about Carlina Rivera. And the reason we invited her on was not only to talk about the measures that the council voted on today, but also because she is a candidate in the new 10th congressional district in Brooklyn and lower Manhattan, as we've talked about this here on Driving Forces and on our sister shows on on uh, Ben Max's show, as well as on uh, City Watch, we've invited a number of the candidates in this district on. So it's been a it's a pleasure to be able to have her on. And before we get to her, just very briefly of her bio, let's uh, give you the. Basic details, she currently represents the 2nd District on the New York City Council, where she was born and raised. The district includes East Village, Flatiron, Gramercy Park, a number of other communities, including the Lower East Side. And during her tenure on the council, she's introduced and passed legislation related to a number of issues, including sexual harassment, immigration, criminal justice reform, affordable housing, small business survival, and bicycle safety. Very briefly about her bio, she began her career in after-school programming, working with children in some of the city's highest-needs schools, and she went on to become the Director of Programs and Services at Good Old Lower East Side, which is a local nonprofit focused on social justice. She served as a community board member, community organizer, and a member of a task force that secured funding for East River Waterfront Resiliency in the aftermath of Superstorm Sandy. And if you can believe it, that's 10 years ago now. Prior to her election into the city council in 2017, she was the legislative director to her predecessor, Rosie Mendez, and she is considered one of the more progressive members of the city council and currently chairs the council's committee on criminal justice. Council member Rivera, welcome to Driving Forces. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you for the introduction. I appreciate that. We covered a lot. I know. And before we get to the campaign, we really do want to find out your take on the council's actions today. Very important measures that we just talked with the speaker about. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the council's actions and why you felt these were important to take. Well, after we saw a right wing Supreme Court start to dismantle our access to abortion and frankly, all reproductive rights, we need to step up and we need people with a perspective that has been working on these issues and other issues of national importance. And I think the council has really blazed a trail in that regard. You heard in 2019, we established the nation's first abortion access fund. I've passed legislation, including two bills uh, passed today around increasing access to contraception, whether that's long acting reversible Contraception today was to make the abortion pill more readily available in city-run health clinics and also a public health campaign to give information on those misleading crisis pregnancy centers that are actually fake clinics that do not provide uh, abortions that are anti-abortion, who really lure people in when they're at their most vulnerable. 
So I'm really proud of, of what the council has done today. Uh, we, it, it's something that I'm looking forward to doing in Congress in terms of continuing to fight for the funding and legal protections that liberal cities need to defend abortion access, even as conservatives attack it nationally. I think with Republicans already working on passing a national abortion plan, I'll do everything possible to codify the protection of Roe into law. And here in the city, we really want to lead the way and let people know that it's possible, there's a model, and for those who are especially adjacent to states with uh, restrictions or bans, these are things you can do on the municipal level. And so we wanted to make sure that we were leading the way. And in addition to today, as was mentioned, we're going to be working on increasing the abortion access fund and ensuring that people know that they can come to New York City and receive the care that they need. Uh, Council member, thanks so much for being here with us today on WBAI. It's a, a pleasure to have you here. Um, just want to uh, stay on that topic for one more second, because mm-hmm. talking about people who are coming to New York City or to New York State generally, perhaps to uh, avail themselves of abortion services that are restricted or now unavailable uh, where they live, just wanted to ask you, you know, either philosophically, financially or both, how much of an obligation do you think New York should take on, uh, you know, voluntarily to provide that kind of access for people who do not live here, do not pay taxes here. Uh, I understand the the principle of, of wanting to be a leader in terms of, of sort of speaking out for, uh, you know, uh, the liberty of, of reproductive rights and, and reproductive choice. But, uh, you know, how much of that burden do you think New York should carry? I think as a result of, of the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade women across the United States are desperately searching for abortion care and tens of millions more are living in fear over a a concerted Republican effort to further roll back our rights. And I think now more than ever before, local governments and elected officials need to fight like hell to secure safe, legal and easily accessible abortion care for everyone. And I feel the steps that New York has taken, we've already established ourselves. We uh, have always been a city that has, has welcomed people to be their true selves, to live an authentic life, to access services for opportunity. It is becoming harder and harder to live here in New York City. It's become incredibly expensive. And, you know, for folks who are, are trying to build a life for themselves, you know, affordability is always an issue. Healthcare should be treated as a, a fundamental human right, and that includes bodily autonomy and the and the right to access abortion. And I feel here in New York City, we have the resources to do it. We have the access, the talent. We do have a healthcare system that includes the largest municipal uh, public healthcare system in the world that is world class. And we want to make sure that people know that they can receive an array of services, but specifically on this issue. That is so deeply divisive and there is so much fear and anxiety all over the country. You know, people are going to get services here. We've already seen that with the Abortion Access Fund, hundreds of people receive services yearly because of what we were able to do with a quarter of a million dollars. And so the advocates who are really involved in this, whether that's the New York Abortion Access Fund or the Bridget Alliance, they have their projections that are very, very responsible They've really planned it out fiscally, and I feel the plan that we've set forward um, makes a lot of sense and, and is the right thing to do. 
and council member. Now we're going to get to why we wanted to definitely have you on this show to talk about your congressional campaign. But before I ask you a question, I want to let our listeners know uh, about a poll that came out earlier today from Data for Progress that put you ahead of the pack. It basically had you leading the Democratic primary field. And as many of our listeners know, there are more than a dozen people who have announced plans to run for the seat, but it had you ahead of uh, everyone else. Now you're in this crowded field. How do you differentiate yourself? Well, you know, I would say that it's, I think from what I, the response that I'm getting was like people want to see their member of Congress as someone who has an ear to the ground. I think that is how we remain effective, right? Someone who has the political courage to take tough, bold stances, but someone who is clear, direct, uncompromising and doesn't lose sight of what's happening in our communities and, and someone who stays rooted. I can't help that, right? My, my life uh, started um, in NY10. It, it continues. Um, as, as you mentioned, you read my bio. Um, I mean, I was a, you know, I went to my first tenant association meeting um, when I was a kid. I, I joined my local community board. I'm someone who is seeking to represent NY10 because these are the communities that raise me. My, my lived experiences relates to many of the challenges experienced by New Yorkers of this district. I have a tangible record of results on some of the most urgent issues facing our nation. We mentioned reproductive rights, but climate action, housing, safety, and criminal justice, that's just to name a few. And, and these are items that I've led on, I've, I've gotten past, or, or that are being built right now, and not merely matters of, of rhetoric. And I'll continue to build coalitions and, and deliver like I have over the last several years for the communities of this district. And I thought the poll reflected the momentum that we're seeing. And, and it was exciting. Uh, but we, we know the real poll, right? It's, it's August 23rd. So I do hope everyone goes out there and, and make sure their voice is heard. You're listening to Driving Forces on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons, and we are speaking with New York City Council Member Carlina Rivera, candidate uh, for Congress in New York District 10. And just to stay on that for one more moment, Council Member, if we could, is there any area, you know, differentiating yourself from the pack in a primary can be can be quite challenging on lots of big ticket issues, your views might be fairly similar to the other people. Is there any uh, particular topic on which you find yourself having quite a different view than the other people that you're competing with? You know, I, that's a great question because I feel some of the top issues that, that I've mentioned, I've really um, taken these really strong unapologetic stances. I mentioned reproductive justice. I mentioned uh, climate action and the effects of climate change, especially NY10 has these coastal communities, which are mostly public housing families that were really affected during Hurricane Sandy. And so we'll see more resilient infrastructure uh, be a part of the conversation. And we have to make sure it's a a working waterfront, right, that we're utilizing it. But I would say the issue that I've been talking about since, you know, I was organizing for housing justice before I ever was elected uh, to public office. And I think housing is something that sets me apart. Uh, I'll continue to fight to increase housing affordability in, in New York, you know, in Congress and helping and incentivizing states and localities to 
eliminate some of the needless barriers to affordable housing production. I think providing new pathways for home ownership, enacting tax credits for renters, expanding Section 8 housing vouchers to every eligible family. I know Section 8 made all the difference in my life where I grew up. Investing in resilience, energy efficiency, and accessibility of homes. And, you know, that is something I I think in the council, whether it's working to actually uh, produce or bring online, put in the pipeline thousands of units of affordable housing, and really talking about public housing a lot. I mean, this is truly affordable housing. These are hundreds of thousands of people that live in really unacceptable conditions, and so we have to look at solutions like the Green New Deal for public housing, looking to fully fund it, um, you know, as much as possible. And we cannot give up that fight. These families deserve so much better. And in terms of the people that you would be working alongside or potentially working alongside uh, people like Mayor Adams, uh, Governor Kathy Hochul, of course, we're in an election cycle there. But are there any areas in which you would say you substantially disagree with them, think they could be doing a much better job than they're doing right now? I do feel like housing has to ramp up its supply to meet the demand. I think the the mayor and the governor would agree uh, with that statement. I would like to see more of a plan to actually get it going. I feel the last mayoral administration um, really went about it in, you know, rezoning neighborhoods that hadn't seen investment um, in typically low-income uh, communities at the end of a train line. And it just, to me, it was not the right tax. I feel like looking at how do we create opportunities in transit-rich areas makes the most sense. And really ramping up supply is going to be incredibly important. We're just not there, and we haven't been. And we are lagging behind because we just haven't had a plan in place. So I'm hoping with this sort of leadership that has come in in the last few months that there will be a very intentional collaboration that, of course, includes uh, federal funds and utilizing what is a very powerful delegation. The New York congressional delegation is incredibly powerful And I am very proud that I'll have, you know, I have those relationships. I have been cultivating them over many years. And I'll be going in uh, learning from some strong leaders in, in our country. And council member, there's an issue that's close to my heart because I've been doing some work with the, uh, with the Fortune Society and assisting them with communication. So I'm very familiar with this issue. There's a piece of legislation that, uh, did not get to the full council in this last session, the fair chance for housing proposal that supports people post incarceration. And, you know, I bring this up in the context of, you know, how we end mass incarceration and how we provide the right type of services for people who have experienced uh, criminal, the criminal justice system. Where do you stand on the fair chance for housing proposal and what do you think its chances might be in this next session? Well, I supported. I did last term and I, I thank you so much for asking this question. You know, it, it's time to end housing discrimination against people who have records, formerly incarcerated folks. It, it really is time that we look at how to prohibit housing discrimination on the basis of arrest or if someone has a conviction record. And this bill really does address that. 
there are so many barriers for people who are formerly incarcerated. It is to access housing, to access employment. And we have so many dysfunctional systems in place right now, including the humanitarian crisis that is unfolding in Rikers Island and the people that are dying there. And it is just an unsafe place for the incarcerated, detained and officers alike. You know, when it comes to legislation like Fair Chance uh, for housing, it's just smart. It's common sense. It, it, It really will give people the stability that they need. You know, I stand by the notion that housing is healthcare. To have stability in your life, a place to go, and and for those who need maybe 24/7 care and wraparound services, supportive housing, justice involves supportive housing as well as something I, I've been championing in the council. It's important. I think we have a, a great opportunity and a great, I guess, chance to pass it. We have um, a new council that is full of energy that truly cares about progressive legislation and moving. Um, taking big steps towards, you know, making things right and, and improving the lives of people who have just been historically marginalized. And there's no question that people who are justice involved fall into that category. And just one more question for you. We always wish we had more time, but uh, we do make a point of asking uh, elected officials and candidates pretty much uh, all the time about this. Uh, what do you think can be done to address the situation uh at Rikers Island. This is something we've been talking about. The city has been talking about for many, many years. And there there are always sort of uh, very forward looking ideas about how to deal with this. And yet we keep having the same conversation. Is there anything that you would do immediately uh, to address conditions at Rikers Island? Well, incarcerated people are not this is such an such an important question because incarcerated people are not getting the medical and mental health care that they need. And corrections officers, they're unable to do their jobs because, you know, other corrections officers are not in. They're not um, on the job because of conditions in the jails themselves. And not receiving medical care, essentially treating the facilities like one, uh, treating the jails like one large psychiatric facility is just really not going to work. We do not have the resources there. And there has to be a concerted effort to look at how many people right now in jail, detained or incarcerated, have mental health needs. You're going to find an alarming statistic among the women and the men, every single person who is there. So, you know, I know that we can't arrest our our way to safety. We know our safest communities are the ones with the most resources. So we do have to bolster investments in in things like housing and and community-based public safety methods and, and, and programs like Alternatives to Incarceration, I have this great organization called Avenues for Justice and on Avenue B, you mentioned the Fortune Society. Like these are great programs that have to continue to be funded and supported so we can really try to decrease the jail population. We need humane facilities and we certainly have to make sure that those that need mental health services and those who just need to make their medical appointments are actually getting to the doctor. It's not happening. It has to be a total a total change and a redirection. And so we, we have every intention of holding the Department of Corrections and this uh, administration accountable. I've been working tirelessly to bring transparency and oversight to the Department of Correction here in New York City. It is one of the largest in the country. It has a massive budget, but the jails in its purview are completely dysfunctional. 
So uh, and there's that, a lot of work to do there. So I thank you. And for on that question. note, we're going to have to close. But before we do, let our listeners know if they'd like to find out more about your campaign in the district, where they should go. All right. Well, I encourage every, everyone to check out the campaign at, at carlinarivera.nyc. You could also follow me on Instagram, Carlina L. Rivera, and Twitter, at Carlina Rivera. Um, I, you'll see some of our policy, our endorsements, Nidia Velasquez, local council members, 1199. Um, and we're running a great campaign that is building a real diverse uh, coalition across NY10. And I encourage anyone with any questions to reach out. Councilmember Carlina Rivera, thanks so much for appearing here on WBAI this afternoon. Thank you, Phyllis. Thank you, Jeff, for having me. Really, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for all you do. Thank you. And you've been listening to Driving Forces on WBAI, New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, joined by my amazing co-host, Celeste Katz-Barston. And we were just talking with New York City Council member Carlina Rivera. We're going to get to our next guest because we've got a packed show. Absolutely. So on the program, we've talked about a lot of the issues that revolve around the new congressional district lines and those impacted our primaries this year. So now there's another review going on that's going to impact the next council races next year. Uh, so if you've been wondering about why there's another election for council only two years after the last one, there you go. So council members are elected every four years, but the exception is two consecutive two year terms every 20 years. I'll say that one again. Two consecutive two-year terms every 20 years. This 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 takes me a, a while to get my head around, too. That allows for redistricting after each national census. And as you know, the last census was completed in 2020. So the next general election is November 7th of next year. So for the first time in 20 years, all of the recent winners are serving a two-year term as opposed to the usual four-year term. So what happens now? Uh, earlier this spring, the New York City Districting, Districting Commission was appointed uh, seven members appointed by the mayor, eight members appointed by the city council, and their job is to redraw council district boundaries in advance of the 2023 election. And chairing that commission is a familiar voice here on WBAI, Dennis Walcott. He served as president and CEO of Queens Public Library since 2016. Previously, he was the state of appointed monitor of the East Ramapo School District, chancellor of the New York City Education Department, and deputy mayor for education and community development. Before that, he was president and CEO of the New York Urban League for more than 12 years and was the executive director of the Harlem Dowling Westside Center. He's joining us right now to talk about the districting commission and explain some of these things, hopefully much better than I just did. So Dennis Walcott, welcome back to Driving Forces. And thank you, Celeste, and to Jeff. Greetings to both of you. And Celeste, you did an outstanding job. I mean, you laid it out <laughs> well, very well. And I, I think for me, the key thing is that uh, we started as a body back in March, and it's been a very dynamic process. And the commissioners have been outstanding, and we brought on great staff as well, and people have been working extremely hard uh, to really take a look at the city and the requirements based on the Constitution, based on the Charter, based on Voting Rights Act, and then also based in getting into the weeds, something that is totally different this time compared to the last time it was done, which is called the deviation rate, basically. that uh, In the past, you had a 10% deviation uh, where 
populations could vary. Now it's 5%, and that was based on a law that was signed by the governor back in October. And why I say that, then that really narrows the spread of how we can really take a look at the districts from the largest to the smallest and what it means. And one final piece connected to all of that is that we've had a huge increase uh, in the city over the last 10 years. So there's been roughly a 629,000 increase of people in New York City compared to the census in 2010. So we have to take a look at all those factors and then come up with a preliminary draft that will be uh, shown tomorrow, and then people will have an opportunity uh, to comment on that. But this is not the final uh, process at all. This is just the next step in a process of having folks take a look at the preliminary draft lines and giving feedback on that. So for people who may be uh, new to the process of redistricting or uh, hearing about it for the first time, trying to figure out how it works, you know, at a very basic, basic level, uh, how do you figure out where the lines should move and where should they stay the same based on the existing maps? Is it about where more people are living, uh, where uh, more certain kinds of people are living? Is it about, you know, what what are sort of the motivating factors when you are, are literally sitting down with a map and saying this district should end on this street or this avenue or this park compared to something else? Sure. No, great question in that. It's all of what you said, plus some of the things I said earlier. I mean, the, we can't um, have an issue where we're disenfranchising a group of people, especially people who are covered by the Voting Rights Act, and so we have to be conscious of that. Uh, we have a charter mandate that we have to follow as well. And so there are a variety of variables, but what you indicated as far as the census and the population growth or decline in a particular area, and then trying to get into a mean number of roughly 172, 173,000 people per district. So the districts this year will be larger as a result of the increase in the overall population. So all those factors play into it, as well as uh, as a result of the charter, we have certain things we can't do. You can't have more than uh, one crossover district from one borough to another. Uh, you have to be very conscious of that, uh, trying to keep neighborhoods as whole as possible. So taking a look at the natural city lines and other factors that either keep neighborhoods whole or try to put neighborhoods together. Um, and so communities are extremely important. And I think for me it's been a very informative process in that as a result of all the hearings that we've held as well as the uh, public testimony both in person, virtually, and people who have written in, we've had over 500 responses so far, and we've conducted public hearings in all five boroughs. Uh, It's been informative because, I'll give you an example, there's a neighborhood that uh, came out very strong saying, you know, we're really not connected to the major part of this councilmatic district. And as a result of that, you know, we feel we should be a part of a different councilmatic district where we'll be looked at in a more serious manner. So. Those types of things factor into the decision-making as well. And so we've had a lot of strong testimony, and uh, once we release the maps, uh, we'll have even stronger testimony because then people will have something more concrete to latch on to as far as, okay, these are the maps they're putting out as the preliminary draft, and then commenting on that. So that process will take place during the month of August. 
And so people have an opportunity, and then eventually we'll be submitting the maps to the city council. And it's interesting because even when we were doing the public testimony, um, elected officials who thought they may not be able to testify, they are definitely welcome to testify. And we've had a number of elected officials uh, come out to the public hearings to testify about their respective district or other districts. And so it's an open process for people to come out and talk their feelings, and uh, we factor that in. And I wish it was easy, but, again, in addition to the commissioners and the great staff, I mean, we have mappers who do an overlay of a variety of variables as far as a district and how a district is laid out and the type of services or buildings are in a particular district. And so all those dynamic things get played into uh, the process as far as uh, creating a district or reinforcing a district and then meeting the threshold of one person, one vote based on the U.S. Constitution. And Dennis Walcott, it's great to have you on Driving Forces today. You mentioned, you know, a little about the timeline. When would this then go before the full council for a vote? When would the public expect to see that happen? That should happen in September, but then it can come back to us. I mean, so the council uh, can say, well, this is great, and then vote to adopt it, or they can send it back, and then we have to go back at it again. So, I mean, this process could last until uh, the beginning of next year. And so we're all volunteers, and so we're balancing out the needs of uh, the volunteers who are part of this as well as our civic responsibility in doing the job. And the one thing we want to do is make sure that we are informed by the public. And, I mean, there will be people who say, well, you didn't listen to us around X. Or you didn't listen around Y. And there will be people who say, wow, you did a really good job of listening to us and what we had to say in the initial round of hearings. So, again, it's a very dynamic process in hearing that type of feedback. And then going back and taking a look at adjustments that need to be made. But again, for me especially, and I think some of the other commissioners, um, it's been a very educational process because you really get into the various streets of communities, not just communities itself, and the roads and trying to follow the main road and thoroughfare and trying to be respectful of that. Not in all cases will that be adhered to, but at the same time, that's part of the goal of trying to be as respectful as possible to the various communities. You know, I, and I, it's so interesting you said that because that's what kind of happened in my assembly district where the line was split right in the road outside of uh, my apartment here. The cross the street, it's another whole assembly district now. I do want, since New Yorkers are filled with opinions, I'd love for people to know if it's not too late for them if they want to submit testimony. Is that still an option, and how can they do that? Sure. I mean, what I would suggest is after tomorrow's hearing, which will uh, be shown on YouTube, all they need to do is go to the New York City Districting website, and there's a YouTube link there, and they can watch it, and then material will be available. Uh, but it has to be approved by the uh, commissioners of the Districting Commission. So that's the next step in the process. And so after that, they can definitely participate by uh, submitting their uh, testimony, uh, views, and then we'll take a look at that as well as uh, come to the hearings once we publish where the hearings will take place. And for testimony, they can submit it to public testimony with a capital P and a capital T as one word at redistricting 
www.nyc.gov. That's public, capital P, capital T, one word, testimony, at redistricting.nyc.gov. So I would just suggest that people wait, and then we take a look at all the uh, testimony that comes in and definitely listen to people when they come to testify in person. And then what we've been able to do, especially with what's happening with the pandemic, uh, we have testimony also uh, virtually. And so what we did uh, over this last round in all five boroughs is we had people who were there in person, and then we would try to alternate person, 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 and then the person virtually, and then go back and forth, and we did that. And I thought that proved to be very successful. We will continue that pattern as well. Uh, Now that people will have something concrete, I expect more people probably to be there in person, uh, and then we'll be publishing, you know, the locations of and the dates and the times of the various uh, hearings that will take place. Well, we would certainly love to have you back further along in the process to see how how it's going and what you are hearing from people. But for now, Dennis Walcott, pleasure to have you here to talk about redistricting here on Driving Forces, and uh, we hope to speak to you again here on the program soon. And my thanks to both of you. It's been fantastic as usual, and I wish you both all the best. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, another program here coming to a close. Just a few minutes. Stay tuned for the evening news with Paul DiRienzo. A very, very quick reminder. Pick up your phone. Go to your computer. Support WBAI. We are unfortunately two months behind in our payment for our tower rent. It's about $35,000. Every dollar that you contribute helps for a donation of $25 or more. You become a member of this station. Go to give to, that's the number two, WBAI.org. Or give us a call, 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. Jeff, you have any uh, exciting news about what's coming up on uh, City Watch on Sunday? I'll be very brief. This Sunday at 10 a.m., David Brand will be hosting. He's got two great guests, Congressman Richie Torres and also Dan Goldman, another candidate for Congress in the 10th District. Celeste and I, of course, will be back next Thursday with Driving Forces and some more insightful guests. I do want to just do a programming note. Do not change this dial. Stay with the news for Paul DiRienzo. But after that, later on at seven o'clock, you will hear from Class Size Matters, Leonie Hameson, about the budget cuts that we've been talking about at our public schools, and also from a teacher, Paul Trust, who recently had posted on social media about his job was cut as a result, and he got amazing attention on this. And then at nine o'clock tonight, on Backstage Stories, Marsha Pendleton will talk with renowned singer, actor, writer, Tina Fabrique, and 2022 Tony nominee, playwright, screenwriter, and educator, Christina Anderson. I want to thank our three guests from tonight. Today, Adrian Adams, the New York City Council Speaker, New York City Council Member Carlina Rivera, a candidate for Congress in the 10th Congressional District, and also Dennis Walcott, who chairs the Districting Commission. As Celeste likes to note, we upload every edition of this program to SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher, so you'll never miss an episode. With that, I'd love to thank you so much for tuning in. Stay with WBAI and have a great day. 